Oh, you guys are so good. Oh, thank you. Hey, did you guys find this mystery forest flute source? You did? Oh, you're just waving at me being a nice guy. All right, all right. Well, listen, the journey continues. If you, if you find out what it was, I want to know. You did? Okay, come tell me after. We, we, if we get to solve this mystery at camp... Pretty excited. Guys, I have a question for you. This is going to date me. This is going to prove to you how old I am. Maybe. I don't know. Do you, do you know what Lord of the Rings is? You do? Oh, my heart is so glad right now. But listen, I don't ask you that question for an exciting reason. Hear me out. I feel like the challenge in front of us, the thing that I'm going to ask you to pay attention to, to follow with me and to focus on is kind of like a scene in Lord of the Rings. Like, just, just roll with me, okay? It's like, this mo it's like you guys are the, the cute little hobbits with your like big hairy feet and you live in the Shire and there's like grass everywhere and it's sunny and you're just like sitting out in the Shire just innocent, right? You're, you're at camp, you're having the best time, you're just, you're just giggling. <laughs> and then it's like this, yeah, everybody giggle. <laughs> oh, just a choir of angels. And then it's like this scene where like I'm the old crusty wizard guy and I come in all worried and I ruined the moment that sounded like this. Because listen, the crusty wizard comes in and he goes, you're happy in your picnics and your laughter and your flutes. It's not the world as we know it. There's orcs and there's sour on the eye guy and doom is evident. Everything is ruined. And you're like, oh. <laughs> okay. Listen, that's, that's kind of the moment and the direction that we're going Tonight, you see, if we have talked about the truth of God, the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus as God, tonight we're going to shift our focus. John is going to bring us to the truth about you and I. And it's not good. We're going to look at the context of our sin. And guys, as we talk about some things that are maybe difficult, maybe uncomfortable tonight, remember, I, I hope that you feel this from me. I have treated you with respect, right? I believe that you are capable of more than maybe what most people would anticipate out of junior hires. And I'm inviting you to roll with me to where we're going tonight, whether it seems fun or not, because it's incredibly, incredibly important. And the truth of God and the person of God, everything that we've arrived at so far desperately wants you to understand this truth that we're looking at tonight. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And when you get there, what do you do? You guys are so good. Yay, yay. Okay, now as you're turning there, I kind of have to catch you up, okay? So I, I want you to hear this. Listen, listen. So we finished last night in John chapter 6. And, that, and, and as you turn, I'm just going to tell you about John chapter 7, okay? 
There's a, past, there's a verse in your verse one where it says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. Remember, he keeps claiming over and over and over to literally be God. And the Jewish leaders hate this. They want him gone. And people all around, remember, they're divided. Some people are saying, these are hard teachings from Jesus. Some of his disciples leave entirely and they're like, this is not what we sign up for. Well, in, in chapter seven, that kind of continues. And we see some people in verse 12 saying, he's a good man. Remember last night, we, we talked about that. Is it an option to just believe that Jesus is a good man? No, he's either fully God, your Lord and Savior, or nothing. But people are processing this. There's other people who go, no, he deceives the people. And they're a little bit further along. They're like, listen, he seems like a good man, but he's claiming to be God. If he's claiming to be God and he's not, there's no way he could be a good guy. He's a liar. Other people are like, how did this man get such learning without having studied? They're like, He's a genius. He's so smart. He keeps mic dropping and doing mind bombs after mind bombs. Our heads are exploding. We just love the amazing. He just totally is reading our mail. He's saying such smart stuff. There's other people in chapter 7 who put their faith in him. And ultimately, there's going to be this moment where the, the Pharisees want to arrest him. And so now they're acting on it. They send these temple guards, which I don't really know what they look like, but I picture them with like helmets and spears and like metal breastplates. And they probably look real serious and big chins. And they, they don't talk. They make this noise. You know what I mean? So the Pharisees send these temple guards now to arrest Jesus. <laughs> Listen to this. Verse 45 of chapter 7, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring Jesus? You're supposed to arrest Jesus. And this is what they say. They go, No one has ever spoke to us the way this man does. They got to Jesus. They were supposed to arrest him. And they heard the stuff he was saying. And they're like, He's speaking to my heart. He understands me. He's unlocked the truth of the world. I can't arrest him. He's so great. I I just love that this is what's happening. And the reason I'm telling you this isn't just to catch you up. It's to help you kind of connect last night to tonight where there are so many different opinions on who Jesus is, on what he's about, on what we're supposed to do in response to him. Then, just like it is now, there are so many people in our world today who believe different things about Jesus. There are so many people in this room who believe different things about Jesus. Some of you have put your trust in him. Some of you are disobeying him. Some of you doubt him and don't have a relationship with him right now. And that has been going on for forever, which is why it's so great that we get the truth of who he is and who we are to reconcile and make our decision. And so that brings us now to where you are, John chapter 8. And in this moment... We're going to see the worst day of a lady's life. And, and before I read this to you, I don't want you to just like read it for entertainment value. Before we read these words, I want you to be able to relate to what she's going to experience in this moment. And the best way I know how to do that is to ask you to track with me in this. Now, there's going to be moments where you're going to go, you're going to want to respond and go, oh, ee, but, but just try, try to be quiet and just process this with me and see what emotions are elicited out of your heart, okay? I want you to imagine if I said tonight, because we're, we're actually going to watch a movie after chapel, and it's not a movie that any of you have ever heard of. In fact, it's a movie about your entire life. See, we went to your parents, and we got your home videos, and you're like, wait, the one's from when I was a baby? And we're like, yeah. And you go, I was so cute when I was a baby. Oh, man, people are going to love me in here because they're going to see how cute I was. And I go, yeah, that's true, that's true. And guess what? We also 
has some state-of-the-art satellite technology, kind of like Google Earth, where we have literally been able to see everywhere that you've been and the stuff that you've been doing. And still, you'd probably be excited. You'd be like, whoa, listen. You're saying you got on video those sweet moves I did at the skate park? You got on video that incredible joke that I told where I made everyone laugh? (laughs) And I would go, yeah, we got it in stunning HD, my friend, and everybody here is about to see it. Do you know what you would do? You'd be like, oh. Everybody in this room is going to love me. This is fantastic. I'm the feature film tonight. Roll it, baby. And then I would go on to tell you, guys, we don't just have your home videos from when you're a kid. We don't just have this satellite stuff from outside. There's actually this technology that very few people know about. Remember, this is fiction, by the way, but just roll with me. It's, it's an x-ray technology where we've been able to see to the inside of your home, to your room, to see those deep, intimate interactions with your family. It's like a reality TV show. Yeah, you hear that? Shh, listen. And it would be at this moment, some of you would start to hesitate. You would not be so excited about this idea because you'd be realizing, wait, wait, wait. And now you're not saying it to me, you're just thinking it. Wait, all those moments where I argue with my mom in the kitchen, like those are gonna be up here? I don't, I don't necessarily want other people seeing that. The, the way that I have treated my siblings over the last few years, like, oh, I don't, no thanks. In moments where I thought I had privacy, what I was clicking on on that computer or looking at on my phone, those are here. And you know what I would tell you? Yeah. Every single person in this room is going to see that. And we're not going to edit. We're not going to cut all of it. And then I would tell you one final piece. I would say, guess what? No one knows this. This has been top secret. We actually have access to a technology that's able to pick up the frequency emitted by your brain waves, and we're able to convert your thoughts into visual pictures. Your thoughts are going to be on this screen. And now you know. You're walking out at this point. You are done for. After tonight, you know what you know concretely? Con- concretely? You will never, ever, ever want to see a single person in this room ever again because they will know the most vile, angry, disgusting, mean, terrible, selfish, lustful thoughts that you have ever had. Everyone won't just have heard them. They'll have seen the thoughts as you thought them in your brain. How horrified would you be for all of your sin to be on public display in this whole room? That would be terrible, right? You know what's fascinating to me, you guys? I didn't mention sin, really, until the end. You filled in the blank. See, I don't have to convince you about sin. You know about this thing inside of you that causes shame and embarrassment and guilt. And for that to be on display, what you just related to and felt, that is the moment for this lady tonight. So I hope that, that you'll empathize with her and go, oh my goodness, what a, what a terrible day. Are you ready to read? Okay. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. He's doing what he normally does. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. So picture this. These religious leaders, all about their rules, they're probably gruffly, roughly, they've got this lady by the arm, right, and they push her in front of Jesus. 
It's a group that is humiliating her. They have caught her in her sin. And her sin involves betraying people that she loves, keeping wrongdoing secret, probably understanding that there's going to be huge consequences to this. Like, this is a big deal for her. And they put her in front of Jesus. And in verse 4 it says, they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. Do you know what, what this is referring to? It's execution. They had a couple different ways that they stoned people to death like this. One, I don't know which one it was. One of them that's the most interesting to me is that they would literally bury the person up to their waist. And then they would surround them and they would grab stones like the size of softballs. And, they would, and from pretty close quarters, they would just huck them at the person until they were damaged and dead. That's what this lady is staring down after the public humiliation of everyone knowing her worst sin. I guarantee you. She is terrified. She is beside herself like, what? This is the worst thing. And now listen to this. Now what do you say, they're talking to Jesus, and it says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. These Pharisees didn't care about this lady. We don't know her name. We're not told any details about her besides the sin that she committed. She's literally just a tool for them in order to trap Jesus, okay? And the, the, the reason this is a trap is because they understood, they're, they're asking him, right? What should we do? Should we stone this lady? Because the Jewish law back in the day said the punishment for this sin is that they have to be stoned to death. But Rome, who was the boss over the Jewish nation at this point, they had removed the right to execute anybody. So I know this is getting complicated, but just hear me out. It's a trap because if Jesus says, yes, stone her, then the Jews are down, but now he's in trouble with Rome. If he says, no, don't stone her, then he's fine with Rome, but all the Jews will be upset because he's broken their rules. Does that make sense? They're trying to get everyone to hate him. They're trying to get him in trouble. They're like, ha ha, we've caught him. This is going to be it. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. There's lots of speculation into what he was writing in the dirt with his finger and I know what it was. He was writing, boys rule and girls drool. <laughs> Why aren't any of the girls cheering? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Guys, remember how I told you how divided people were about Jesus? Oh, it's true here too. Listen, ladies, I respect you. You're smarter than all of boys. I was just joking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> boys, you know it's true. No, listen, listen. <laughs> that was a dumb joke. We don't know what he wrote. Lots of, lots of theologians and Bible commentaries speculate. I'll, I'll give you my guess, but some people think that he's for real, some people think that he's just doodling. Some people think that he's writing the law as it was written in the Old Testament. Some people, and I, I tend to agree with this one, I don't get to tell you that I know it for sure, but do you remember last night when he referred to himself as a spring of water, as a source of living water? Remember that? You remember how in, in recent nights we've talked about the fact that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Well, there's a prophecy that talks about Living water, and listen to what it says. This is Jeremiah 17, verse 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, 
All who forsake you will be put to shame. <laughs> Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. That was written hundreds of years before Jesus is maybe now fulfilling this prophecy by maybe writing the names of the pharisaical leaders who have brought this lady to him as a trap because he knows that they've rejected him. Maybe he's writing their sins in the dirt. And as they stand there and they read their name and then they read the sins underneath, I imagine they're not too excited. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You know what he's saying? He's saying, has this woman sinned? Absolutely. But if right now we're in the business of killing sinners, everybody here is going to die. And it's probably like the skit this morning, right? It's not just talking to people then. This is all of us. This is proclaiming a truth that we see in the Bible. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When I told you that movie illustration, you know what? Every single one of you knew in this room, yeah, I am a sinner. It's an undeniable truth. It's just the, the way that our lives work. And Jesus goes, yep, she's a sinner. So are all of you. And at this those who heard begin to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Who, interestingly, did Jesus have sin? He was the only one who could have thrown a stone at her. With the woman standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus, the only one who could have condemned her, chooses not to. And we'll talk about this at the end of our time tonight, but again, revealing what God is like, his heart, his character, his nature, his interaction with us, right? And, and the thing that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about is this terrible thing of sin, right? If you think about this lady... How did she get here? How did she get to this point where her sin has become such a big deal that it is literally about to cause her death? Her sin has brought her guilt, her shame, her humiliation, all these consequences, and now she's literally about to die. How did she get to this point? What's interesting is the Bible tells us. It, it probably worked for her the same way that it works for all of us. She didn't start here. This had to have started small, right? She probably entertained little sins and was like, they're no big deal. I'll just, and then that led to something bigger and that led to something bigger and, that, and that's how she got here. This principle of sin is described in James chapter one, verse 17. And it's, it's an analogy. This is what it says. It says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The analogy is it's like when you're tempted, when you think that thought of something bad that you want to do, of something that seems like that's worth it, that's selfish, that will feel good, but I know that it's wrong, and you entertain it, and then you go to do it, it's as if you have just given birth to a child. I know, some of the boys are like, no. But, but hear, hear me out. This is an important biblical principle, okay? And your, your child, its name is sin. And you know what your child is doing? 
growing and getting stronger and bigger every single day. And the analogy given to us in James chapter 1, verse 14, is that ultimately when that child, your sin becomes full grown, it kills you. That's the nature of sin, you guys. That's the first thing I want to tell you is that your sin is not static. It doesn't sit still. It is constantly growing and working to undo you and to become your destruction just like this woman in this moment, right? That means some pretty terrible things for you and I. It means that those of us who have sinned and we go, uh, I'm embarrassed of this. I don't want this to be a part of who I am. I'm just going to keep it secret and try not to do it again. What this verse is telling us is that that is not the nature of sin. Sin is not like a good dog sitting in a corner who's going to stay exactly where you want it to stay. Instead, sin is festering, lingering, always growing, always undoing, working towards your demise whether you like it or not. That's a pretty scary thing if you ask me. Um, there's a super wise man that uh, I've had the privilege of knowing. I don't need to tell you about him other than he's this giant older guy. He has a huge platinum white mustache that makes him look like a walrus. And he said this thing to me that I'll never forget. He said, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, hold you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you way more than you ever wanted to pay. That's exactly where this woman is here. I bet if you asked her, 10 years before, do you think you'd ever be in this moment where your sin's going to get you killed? She goes, no way, no way. It held her longer than she wanted to stay, cost her more than she wanted to pay, and took her farther than she wanted to go. But that is the nature of our sin. That is especially the nature of our sin left undealt with. Sin cannot be left hidden and undealt with. It will undo you. The second thing I want to tell you about the nature of sin is that sin overrides us. This is important because a lot of us, when we think of what sin is, we think of the bad things that we do. I'm telling you something worse. Sin isn't the external bad things that you do or the bad things that you think. Sin is something inside of you. Do you realize that the Bible basically says that you have a sin machine inside of you that ruins everything that you think, everything that you do, everything, even the nice things that you do, right? You end up doing it for a selfish reason or because you want to get noticed or because you think it's going to, be, it's going to feel good to be generous. Everything, the good things you do, the bad things you do, all of them are tainted with sin. We, we are sin machines, Right? And for this, for this lady, she probably knew better. She probably didn't want to do this. And something overrode her better judgment, causing her to choose sin. And it wasn't out in the world. It was a part of her that she couldn't escape from. And it's the same for you and I. I want to read you this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. I don't like this verse. This is what it says. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. There's some translations of the Bible, that sinful nature, they call it your flesh. The thing that scares me about this verse and what it tells us about our sin, you guys, our flesh, is that it's in us and it has its own desires, what that means is when I want to do something good, there's something in me that has a different desire to squash it, to sabotage it, or to do something else that's wrong. And it's a part of me, right? The, be the best way I could describe this to you would be to say, <laughs> it's your flesh or your sinful nature when, you know how when you first get on summer break and you're just like lounging at home and you're playing video games until your eyes bleed and you're like, you think about the fridge all of a sudden. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go check and see what's in the fridge. So you open it. And the only thing that's in there is like a 10-year-old half-full bottle of mustard. And you're like, oh, gross. There's nothing good to eat. Do you know this moment I'm talking about? Yes. 
Yeah, right? And then you go sit back down, and five minutes later, what do you do? You check the fridge again. Why? Is it because all of a sudden your brain went, logically, I anticipate that there will be a rotisserie chicken in this refrigerator. No. It's because you're, listen to this, listen to this. Your rational mind knows. I checked the refrigerator. In fact, I'm not even hungry. I ate so many potato chips today that I'm a little bit burpy. I don't feel good. I don't need food right now. But something in you, the Bible would attribute this to your sinful nature, your flesh. Something in you overrides that and goes, check fridge now, right? It's this appetite driven, this mood carnal piece of you that overrides your rational mind. Guys, it's your flesh when you know what kind of friend you want to be. And a friend tells you something in confidence that they're really embarrassed and maybe because they needed help or they just needed to process with someone. And you realize now if you take this secret and you share it with someone else, they're going to want those spicy details. They're going to be interested in you. Maybe you can use that to get some popularity points. And so you betray them and you tell their secret or you spread that rumor or you do that gossip. And afterwards, when it all comes back and that friend comes to you and goes, why did you do that? you realize something overrode me. I know the kind of friend that I want to be. I want to be a loyal friend. I want to be a friend where our relationship is great for us. And yet somehow there's this thing in me that overrode that desire that caused me to sabotage what I wanted. Because it's your flesh when you know what kind of son or daughter you want to be. I just, I want to have a great relationship with my parents as far as it depends on me. Guys, I hate this thing that I'm telling you right now. When I was in junior high, my mom would tell me something and I knew that she was right, but in my pride, in my flesh, in my simple nature, I didn't want to acknowledge that she was right. And so even though I knew I was wrong, I would argue with her until I would get grounded, something taken away, whatever. And then I'm sitting in my room confused going, I know she's right and I'm wrong. Why did I just argue with her, you know? Because it's your flesh when you know who you want to be when you're alone. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person who doesn't have shame and, and feel fake or dirty. I want to be a person who I'm the same when I'm with people as when I'm, when I'm by myself. And yet something overrides that desire when you allow yourself to entertain those thoughts or click on those pictures or that website or whatever it is and you get betrayed by your flesh, by your sinful nature. And guys, think about this. If something is choosing for you, are you in control? No. This is the scary part of sin, to build it on top of everything that we've said. Sin, if it continues to override you, do you know what it's proving? Your sin isn't shoulder to shoulder with you. Sin is not something that you can go, I'm just going to try harder. You know what? I don't like this part of me, and so I'm just going to work hard and do it. Sin is not your equal. Sin is more powerful than you. Sin is more powerful than you. This is the best way I could describe it. Um, <laughs> when I was a little kid and I would be on summer break in elementary school, I had a handy-dandy magnifying glass and I absolutely loved it. And for hours, I would go sit Indian style on the front porch and my legs got so used to being like burnt by the hot cement because I was so engrossed in what I was doing. And what I was doing was ants would walk by. And as the ants were walking by, I would train the beam of my magnifying glass just to be laser tight, just you could almost hear the heat, right? Like, Ugh! and this little ant would be walking <laughs> and I'm there with my little kid voice going, <laughs> and I would put it, I would put my beam right in front of the ant and the ant would walk into it and his antennas would sizzle off. And ants don't talk, but I imagine if, if he could, his reaction would be, Aah! and listen, if the ant 
if the ant were the application of what we're talking about, if you believed, that's okay, listen. I encountered a difficulty. I'm the master of my own destiny. I could turn this day around. I'm just going to turn around and start marching the other way, right? Maybe he's got like an aphid or half a grasshopper on his back. He's like, I'm taking this to the queen. I am fine. I'm walking this way. And then he starts walking the other way. He's going this slow. And what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to take my magnifying glass. I'm going to put it in front of him on this side again, right? And now he has no antenna, so his face bumps into my beam. And he goes, whoa, you know? And each direction that he goes, guys, I would do this over and over again for hours. I loved it. I could tell you what different species of ants smelled like when they burned. That's, I know, I was a gross little kid, but this is the point I'm making. If that ant could think, he probably thought he was in charge of his own life. He could just try harder. He could just go a different, dire- different direction. But you know what was so clear to me? There, it is impossible for this ant to get away from me. I am so much bigger than him. There is nothing he can do. I will overpower him no matter what. Guys, in in this illustration I'm giving you, (laughs) I'm the bad guy. I'm your sin, and you're the ant. Your sin is not your peer. It's not shoulder to shoulder. Your sin is so much more powerful than you that you can't escape it. And some of you know this from your experience. Some of you, in your guilt and your shame, you feel like you are drowning in your sin, and it's killing you, and you feel trapped. Well, I'm here to tell you the Bible says what you're experiencing is true. That's your real situation and condition. In, in Romans chapter 7, it says it this way. This is another verse that I don't like, okay? But if it's true, it's true. Chapter 7, verse uh, 15, it says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Guys, I don't know what, what your sin is. Maybe it's Lust, maybe it's anger, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's selfishness, maybe it's lying, even though you, and you're like, I hate that I lie or steal it. Maybe it's a combination of multiple sins and there's just this thing in you that just, instead of choosing right, you keep choosing wrong and you don't like it, but you feel yourself being overridden. Paul experienced this too. This lady in our story experienced this too. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, this is what Paul says. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? from this body of death. Paul knew my sin will always overpower me. I'm not strong enough to beat it. I can't try hard enough to conquer my sin. I'm stuck. I'm hopeless. In my condition, I can do nothing. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Guys, our sin separates us from God, and if God is if God is not just the source of love, but he is love and truth and goodness and, and everything worthwhile and we're separate from that because of our sin, then we find ourselves in spiritual death. We're trapped, we're hopeless, and we don't have the power to get ourselves out. For me, when I was in junior high, I'm a little bit nervous to tell you this. Um, I was in school one day and a classmate showed me some images that we should not have been looking at. And guys, I was trying to be a good kid. But now, something had taken root in my brain. And there's these thoughts in there that immediately, I don't like that they're there. And I go, I'm just, I'm going to focus on other things. I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to try, I'm going to try, I'm going to try my best to not sin, but be who I want to be, right? It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Now my thoughts 
are changing. My view of myself is changing. My self-esteem is going down. Sin is starting to take hold and have its effect on me. I don't like myself anymore. I don't like the way my brain is thinking. Like I'm so defeated and discouraged. And I was stuck in this lie that said, you can try hard enough to be a good person and your sin won't affect you anymore. And guys, as a junior higher, I cried myself to sleep a lot of nights because that is not how life works. Because sin is not your equal. It's not shoulder to shoulder. It's more powerful than you. And I was spinning my wheels because I didn't know that. And eventually, I was so overwhelmed and I just felt trapped and stuck that I, I came across this verse that um, basically talked about confessing your sin, that you have to acknowledge that you need help and you have to get it. Guys, I went to my parents and I said, Mom and Dad, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm stuck. I don't like myself. I need help. And like this woman, what should have been this moment of absolute shame for me was actually my relief because my parents said, Buddy, we love you. And we are always here for you and we want to help you. And I had access to something beyond my own strength. And that's, that's exactly what the Bible tells us. We're, we're going to transition into more of this stuff tomorrow night. But what I want to leave you with is this thing that happens in Romans, I'm sorry, in, uh, in our passage in John chapter 9. You don't have to read it. Just listen to this. In John chapter 9, Jesus is going to heal a blind guy. And he's been blind since birth. He's never seen anything. And it's kind of a cool story. I wish we had more time. The way that Jesus heals him is he literally spits in the mud. He goes... And then he smushes the mud up and he makes it into like two little cakes and he presses them onto the guy's blind eyes. And through that, he does the miracle and he can see. If you're like, that's in the Bible? Guys, you should read John chapter 9. It's awesome. But here's the point. Again, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Do you remember this? And the Pharisees, the religious rulers show up and they're like, what happened here? You're breaking the rules. This can't happen. And Jesus has this interaction with them. It's interesting to me. In John chapter 9, after he's healed on the Sabbath and the religious leaders are all bent out of shape, he basically tells them, and you know what? You're blind too. And they well up in their pride and they're like, what? You're saying, you're just saying we're blind? There's no way. We, we, right? Remember, they wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Because they're convinced in their pride, we're fine without Jesus. We can do whatever needs to be done on our own, in our own strength. Jesus isn't the solution to any of my problems. Let's get rid of him. Remember, I experienced in my sin, this woman experienced in her sin, I'm not enough on my own. When I think that, it's like I'm blind. It's like I'm broken. And what Jesus says for them, probably with empathy, is if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. What he's saying is you think you're fine on your own. You're not blind. You can see. You can do this. You can handle your own sin, and it's not overpowering you. You're about to be in a world of hurt. Your guilt is on your own shoulders. You're taking this. But if you would just acknowledge, I'm blind, I'm broken, I'm stuck, I'm drowning in my sin, I can't do this, it's overpowering me, I need help, that would be where the relief is. What, what Jesus wants us to understand, you guys, is the first step to experiencing the truth of Jesus, to experiencing relief from the truth of our sin, is admitting that we're broken, that we're sinners, that we're stuck, and that we can't solve that huge sin problem that we have. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. 
And God, for these students, I don't know which sins that they're embarrassed of, which sins that they would like to stay secret. God, I don't know what, what you've stirred in their hearts, but I ask that you would prompt them, that you would encourage them, that you would convict them to not try to handle their sin on their own. God, would you make it obvious that our sin overpowers us, that we're not strong enough to handle it, but that you are. We love you so much, Jesus, and we thank you for the truth of who you are. We thank you for the convenient truths, for the uncomfortable truths. God, because we thank you that you know us so well, thank you for loving us through your truth. We love you back. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.